Hey, it's Steve and welcome to Share, a podcast that sets out to do just that. From stories and reflections to ideas and concepts, each episode will dive into a wide range of topics and discussions that come from a journey through life. The simple fact I've discovered is when we share, we empower, not just ourselves, but each other. Are you planning your next holiday? Let the team at Mind and Body Travel inspire you. With a focus on wellness and well-being, the team at Mind and Body Travel can assist you whether you're looking to attend a retreat, test yourself on an adventure, tick off that bucket list trip, or just create a travel itinerary that includes all that you want in a holiday while taking into account all that your mind and body needs. Revolutionising the way people look at holidays and travel, they believe that travel should deliver nourishment for your soul, clarity for your mind, and renewed focus upon your return. So you ready to take off? Then it's time to check in with the team at Mind and Body Travel. Just visit www.mindandbodytravel.com. There's so many people who say they're speakers and they never actually get in the arena. They've created their keynotes, they've created their presentations, but besides for presenting it in their own lunchbox, they've never got out into the arena. You have to get in the arena. Speaking is a contact sport. The only way you get better at it is in the arena. In this week's episode, I had the opportunity to unlock some amazing insights and reflections from an absolute powerhouse of a woman and human being. Her story proves that you can own your past, but that it doesn't dictate your future. That the stumbling blocks and challenges in life are there to grow you, to test your resilience, and when you realize it, they lead you towards opportunities, experiences, and what your true purpose in life is. She's a well-sought-after trainer, speaker, coach, and the founder of Any Given Tuesday, an organization that offers a number of programs like Speak Like Ted, which helps people create, pitch, and deliver to get cut through and stand out. So if you've had that fire burning within you to stand up and stand out, then the phenomenal Jacqueline Nagel certainly delivers plenty of invaluable takeaways as she shares her passion for people and potential within this episode. Jacqueline, welcome to Share. Thank you so much for having me. It's exciting to catch up with you. I think we met about 10 years ago, I was thinking about it, through Tony Curl. It's going to have to be close to that. Yeah, So because that was not long after I moved to Brisbane. I've actually been in Brisbane just over 10 years now. Yeah, wow. I met Tony and you through the John Maxwell mastermind session that we did for about six months. Yes, and then I kept bumping into you at different events around the place for a while. So yeah, when I was networking my little heart off when I first relocated. Yeah, and the last time we caught up was at TEDx Brisbane in late 2022. Yes, it was. It was like that first real live event that we're all back at. It's amazing though when you connect with people and over time you keep running into them and I've kept a track through LinkedIn and and through social media of your story and and where you've come from and where you are now, so which is just brilliant to watch you grow and watch you go through some some things which we'll talk about yeah but build such resilience and you know what you're doing in empowering women and, and empowering people to kind of speak their truth and and stand up on a stage and and own it yeah it's really important to me as you've probably guessed you've been following me for a while and it's something that to be honest I just did to start with to fill in a gap Right. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like I was in a scenario where I had to find a way to earn some money. I had to earn more money than a job. I had to get myself out of quite a challenging situation. And it was like, oh, what am I going to do? I was like, I'm really, I used to be really good at teaching people to speak and to sell. And so that's where it started. It was like, well, maybe if I spin up some workshops, I can earn some more money than 
you know, and I had a background in doing workshops. It wasn't like, you know, let's see if I can give this thing a crack. Like I've been running workshops since 2002. But going down this pathway was not something I saw as what I was meant to do in life. It's just unfolded that way. Awesome. And you've been drawn, drawn to it along the way. Yeah. I, was, I mean, I've always believed, you know, for those who don't know me, I do work and actually work with both men and women. We do have some programs that are specifically women, but we do work with both men and women in the realm of speaking, pitching and sales and particularly speaking and particularly pitching. I'm a pitch coach. I've always been fascinated by the power of words and power of speaking and power of story. You know, my own background, I, I wouldn't have this life if I hadn't learned how to speak, you know, and I didn't build those skills through school. I didn't build those skills through university. Like I built them after I got thrust into having to use them when I was about 29, right? So learning how to speak and how to use my words and language gave me this crazy career that people see on LinkedIn and reach out to me and say, my God, your, your background is so ridiculously diverse. And it's not because I'm a genius. It's because I know how to communicate, right? And so in some ways, it's kind of like it seemed quite random when it started, but in other ways, it's how I've built everything my whole career, my whole life. Mm. So I definitely want to dig into a lot of the roles and a lot of the companies that you've had and, and obviously are a part of, but I'd love to dig into a bit of your story. What's, what's the path that you've walked to, to today and, and what are some of the challenges and, and some of the reflections that you've got through that? I guess one of the big things is I do have some sexy headlines. So I'll touch on them really quickly. It is I took over and reimagined a family recruitment business in my early 30s. That growth went from, you know, we were sitting around 3.6 to 4.2 million in regional Queensland 25 years ago. It's very comfortable. There definitely wasn't million dollar businesses on every street corner at that stage. Mm. I reimagined it. We ended up that business, we grew from 4.2 to 22.4 million in 15 months at one stage. That included a period where we uh, did a stock exchange listed exit, which is not everything it's cracked up to be and also wonderful, and then delivered their projected three-year net profit, which was their return on investment within 10 months. You know, and we went from being this the 49th branch to come on board to performing the top five within a matter of months across the country. So that was an extraordinary experience. I went from that into General's HR consulting. My kids were little. I just used my networks I had from having been so long in recruitment. My kids were little and I ended up in industrial relations. And again, it wasn't because I was a specialist in it, although I did become a specialist in it, but it was something I was trying to solve a problem for a particular client. So a $50 million plastics manufacturer um, in Mackay. And they were literally stuck with their EBA negotiations. And after six months of being on site every month and hearing them I'll be gentle, speak about it. <laughs> I just said one day, do you want me to have a look at that? And they're like, have you got, do you do EBAs? So I was like, no, but like, and I don't know if I can do anything, but at least let me have a look at it because you seem to be stuck. And I came back with a solution the following month that I thought could work from my research and we, they backed me on it. And we had the entire EBA that had been stuck in negotiations for about three years. We had the entire thing done, signed off and implemented in less than four months. Right. And so that took me down a pathway of that. And again, what that was, was a, a really good synthesizer of information, but also really knew how to position our language and our words in negotiations and coaching and, you know, briefing sessions and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, that led to a whole range of different things, including being CEO of a traffic control company that was a hostile installation. So 
the shareholding CEOs removed at 8 a.m. and I was installed at 9 a.m. with a very clear mandate of what I had to do. And of course, you know, a woman coming into a traffic control company as a CEO when their best mate just got evicted is not, not a stellar starting point. Lots of projects, and I'm sure we're going to talk about one of those in particular. But where the foundation is, it's really interesting because my background is not, I should not have had this life, and that's why I'm so passionate about speaking. And my background is through family circumstances and through life circumstances, ended up in scenarios that I don't speak about a lot publicly, but end up in scenarios where homeless twice as a teenager. Teenage pregnancy, I gave that little girl up for adoption. She's been back in our life for more than 10 years now. Really running the gauntlet on risky behavior, bad decisions, on the wrong side of the law a few times and just really lucky that people saw something in me and got me out of those places and those systems. When I was 23, I actually moved to Melbourne because what was made clear to me by someone who was keeping me out of the tangles of the system was I needed to change. And they said, you need to move away. You need to go at least 2,000 kilometers. You need to break these bonds of where you are. So move to Melbourne. And with that kind of distance, it was Melbourne or Perth. And I figured with Melbourne, I could still drive back home if I needed to. And when I was in Melbourne, I fell into a temp job. I went with no money, no job, knew one person from school, bunked in with her. And I fell into a temp job with Morgan and Banks, which at the time was owned by Andrew Banks and Jeff Morgan. And I was an EA, an executive assistant. I had no idea what I was doing. I was in Melbourne in the middle of winter. I didn't know that ice fell on windscreens of cars in the morning. And I wore bright clothes in the middle of black in Melbourne. Like I had no idea what I was doing. But my two consultants that I supported were incredible. And one had been treasurer of Lloyds of London before coming back to Australia. And one had been an executive in the World Bank in Sri Lanka. And they mentored as naturally as they breathed. And I fell in love with business and strategy because Morgan and Banks was executive recruitment, 23 to 25% were the top end of town and we were dominant, right? I mean, we all, all of us who worked there at any point in time, whether it was an EA or a consultant or a practice manager, were, you know, we all call ourselves Morgies. And the other thing that happened was whenever Andrew Banks was in town, he would run this thing called Rookie Crash. And I don't know whether it was actually called that or whether we just called it that, but that's what I remember it as. And it was literally Friday afternoon, usually it would be a few hours in the boardroom and he would, and everyone who'd been in the business less than 12 months. So my consultants that have worked globally, right through to me, who'd come out of Rockhampton, expect to be in the boardroom. And it was all about, he was never interested in your successes and your wins, his theory was that that showed up in the reports. He was always interested in, but he's always interested in your fuck ups. Like, what didn't you win? What did you lose? What was unexpected? What blindsided you? And, you know, I was an executive assistant, so I didn't have a lot to bring to the table, but I was immersed in this environment. And he would teach and correct, if you like, through war stories. Mm. So he wouldn't say, well, this is what you should have done. He'd say, okay, so when that happened to me, and he would unfold the scenario and unfold the story, and then he would walk through what he'd learned in that, in that teach you what to do next. So even though I wasn't at the consultant level at that stage, I was immersed in it. And then when I wanted to become a consultant, because I'd been immersed in that, it was something I was able to step into quite quickly. I still cried every night of the first six months I was a consultant because 
it was like going through a mini MBA process. And I was this, you know, dropout kid from regional Queensland. Like I, it was like, it was mind blowing. And I had to sell. I didn't, I kind of didn't register that consultants sell to build their work. So the first six months or so I cried every night, but that was the foundations of my career. And that was really the turning point. And Andrew, if you've ever come across him and anyone in your audience who's ever come across him, is a masterful communicator, right? He is an incredible communicator. One of the best strategic minds I think that's been in this country from an entrepreneurship perspective. And so to have learned with him when I was actually really raw and rough and open, because I had no preconceptions. I hadn't been to uni. I didn't have a high school certificate. I had no frameworks to bump up against. I had no expectations of what it should look like. So I was very raw and open. And I was in this environment, not just of Andrew, but Chris and Nero, who were my senior consultants, where I could just like absorb. Probably for that time as well, his vulnerability and his mindset around sharing his war stories and working through that was probably very much ahead of its time. Oh, look, there was so much in retrospect that was ahead of its time. I remember when I went back to the family business in central Queensland, and obviously things, you know, had sorted themselves out and we were, you know, all back as a family. But I remember <laughs> realizing in about the first two or three weeks what life was like without the systems that Morgan and Banks had, because mm. we rolled out this databasing system that was probably sophisticated even by today's standards. And they bought the team out from America to be in the business for six months to make sure it would work. And then I went back to family-owned business in regional Queensland. I was like, uh, where's my things? Where's my <laughs> um, so we were, we were exposed to things that were way ahead of its time and it was an extraordinary working culture. And so to have that emotion as my first real job at that point in time when I was still really raw and open and without preconceptions was extraordinary. Mm. Tell me about some of the dialogue and some of the thoughts that went through when you were homeless and in those early years. What were some of the conversations you had with yourself that you got you through it? So that's an interesting question because, number one, I don't define myself by that anymore, so I have to think really hard. Number two is, and I say this to people all the time, when you're in those sorts of scenarios, there's not a lot of bandwidth for thinking. Mm. Right? It's actually survival. It's actually, and even when you're not technically homeless, you're very close to the survival line. Mm-hmm. And when it comes from high impact events as well, there's, you know, we all, I think we overuse the word trauma, but high impact events. And I don't recall, I think my smarts got me through because everyone could see through that there was a smart kid underneath. Um, I always worked hard. So I never once went on Centrelink or unemployment benefits or anything. And that's not because it was a point of pride. It was just, I was always able to get a job. So I don't recall ever actually having something pull me through. What I do remember is every time it got really bleak, I would think, this can't be all there is. But I don't recall, and you really don't, when you're in those scenarios, and even when you're, if you're not homeless, just if you're living close to the poverty line, close to borderline, you've got big impact events that are like occupying your bandwidth, you don't have the luxury of thinking about further than like I didn't I didn't expect to make it to my 20s let alone I'm now in my 50s right so there's no forward thinking there's no you know when I get through this I can get to that I wish I'd had that like literally it was just like what do I need to do today and what I need to do was not grand it was like don't miss the freaking bus and get your ass to work make sure you can find a way to have the rent on Friday 
at one stage when I was pregnant with my daughter when I was a teenager, she's my oldest child, I've got four, I lived in a convent, right, in a converted apartment in a convent here in Brisbane. And it wasn't because I was there for unwed mothers. They just had this part of the convent that wasn't being used and was cheap. So it was kind of like, have I got enough food for today and tomorrow? And I need to get my ass to work. And then it was literally like, because you live in a state of exhaustion. And so the wake up call for me, and it wasn't that it was all bad. Like, you know, I did some good stuff. I went and got an actual office job. I did a traineeship. I had people, my grand, I remember my grandmother ringing me when I was 19. And those days, the cutoff date for later start of a traineeship was 19. And she said, your grandfather's mate, Peter, has a business that does traineeships. I'm like, yeah. And I knew who I was. I'm like, yeah. And she's like, so he's got an admin traineeship at the moment. I'm like, yeah. And she goes, and you're 19. I'm like, yeah. And she goes, we think you should come back here and live with us and do it. At first, I was like, whatever. Like, I had a lot of attitude. I was not who I am now. I had a shitload of attitude. And then there was something about a week later and I just went, maybe I should. And I did. And I went back and that's where it probably really started because even though I was still in bad way mentally and emotionally, I got a job that kept me occupied, that paid me well. I liked the people I worked with. I went from that job, I was run up in the Queensland State Training Awards for my traineeship. And from that, I got an offer to join an architectural firm in Brisbane. I moved to Brisbane, no idea what I was doing. Thankfully, the managing director of that firm actually, like he was strict. I was receptionist. I ended up being his executive assistant by the end of it. But he would like, he'd walk out <laughs> as, you only, as only you could in the 80s. He'd walk out and he'd kind of look at me and go, you need to wear longer skirts. They need to at least touch your knee. And then like another day, he'd say something about, can you, can someone take her to David Jones and get someone teach her how to do a makeup? Like he was really quite blunt. But then he taught me, like we used to have Japanese clients fly in, fly in and he taught me how to actually be in a boardroom with them and serve them tea and that sort of stuff. And so there was a lot of that sort of stuff that these days we go, how dare he? And there were times when like, I mean, I just wanted to flip in the bird and get out of there and resign and go and have a drink. But for some reason I stuck with it. And from that, then I was able to, I got a really good job back in um, Rockhampton, but that's when I also, the emotional mental load caught up with me and that's when I got in the crosshairs and it was highly recommended that I move away for a while and break some bonds. It seems like your journey has really caused you to be a problem solver, to look at everything, no matter what it is, is not look at the problems, but kind of go, what are the solutions? That's really true. So even, um, and I'll unpack the career part of it in a minute, but even, so I do, and you've seen my post, I'm very open. I do live with complex PTSD. And even with that, I'm like, okay, I get that. So what are my strategies? I get that. So what is, I treat it as a data point. So I get that, but what do I do with that now? And like, you know, there are different times where I've got to do different things. Like at the moment, I've got to get some pretty serious strategies in place, but there's different times of different things, but that's actually who I am at heart. I'm a problem solver and I get bored when there's no problems. And it's not that I get bored because I need to live in chaos, although that may be some of it, but I want to know that what I'm doing is solving something. And so that's why I was a really good consultant. And that's why I went down rabbit holes with recruitment consulting and then actual consulting. A lot of the things I'm really proud of came up because I got curious about a problem solving was happening. So one of the projects I'm proudest of in my whole career was we got 30-something women off Centrelink benefits for life through a project that we did with a client. It's awesome. Right? And that came up in a skill shortage, in the first real skill shortage that was, you know, up for debate, which was the early 2000s. And they couldn't get skilled people into the warehouse. And they were talking about 
as one of the strategies, maybe breaking out some of the trades jobs in the warehouse to get unskilled workers in, right? Process-driven jobs off the tradesmen, unskilled workers in, and hopefully that would supplement the workforce. But they weren't sure how to do it. I was their key recruiter at the time. We were external recruiters. And one, it got down to weekly meetings with the C-suite on site, the leadership team on site. It was all about how do we solve this? And they got to a point a couple of weeks beforehand where they'd actually said about, you know, the unskilled bit. And, but there was nothing happening and it was all. And I just said, look, if I go away and come up with something really radical, will you at least look at it? And they were like, their little words were from the site operations manager and the site CFO backed me. He said, we're so desperate. Of course, we'll have a look at anything you bring to the table. I went, okay, cool. So I get out, walk out to the car, CFO comes with me. I'm getting Kylie's in my window. He says, can't wait to see what you bring back next week. And I'm like, either can I? And he just looked at me, he goes, please tell me you've got something. I'm like, no. He goes, Jack, I just backed you in there. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll come up with something by next week. And what it came up with was employing, specifically running that program to employ women whose children were now all at school, who had been on Centrelink, paying them enough to get them off Centrelink, over-employing by 30% so they could cover each other for children being sick. We gave them six weeks annual leave so they could all take most of the school holidays off. We had coverage. So there were all these things that we did. And the only test we did was manual dexterity because a lot of these women were high school dropouts, school dropouts, illiterate, wrong side of town, all that sort of stuff. And when I left two years later, the majority, 85% of those women were still working there. And it changed their lives. They were earning mining money working in a workshop in town. And the sort of impact that it had, it wasn't just about that. I'm really proud of it. And it was interesting enough, I was at a, a lunch of executive women about two months ago. And we're talking about what is the thing we're proudest of. And I talked about that. And a woman at the other end stood up. She's actually, she is a um, campus manager at a university. And she stood up and she said, I did my PhD on that project. I was like, what? She said, yeah, we just never knew who it came from. We knew it came from outside the organization. And I was like, so it was, it was groundbreaking enough for someone to do in a PhD, which like really blew my mind. But, you know, the sorts of impacts it had was it created a lot of divorces because all of a sudden women had some power back. It changed generational poverty for those families. And it was the little things though. Like I remember a woman saying, oh, you know, it was so good to go to, her kid was about seven years old, to his athletics day yesterday. And I was like, but you weren't working for like years before starting this job. Like why couldn't you go before? She goes, I would never have gone before. She said, I was so ashamed of how my kid had to turn up at school every day. There's no way I would walk through those gates. And so it's even in those little things that change. So yeah, so it's the problem solving at its best. The same with the CEO job. Like I was a wildcard entrant and I'd actually accepted another job the night before the final interview, but I knew the headhunter. So I knew to pull out of the job at that point would damage his reputation, not mine. And I also knew him. He'd been one of my bosses and I was a wildcard entrant. And so I turned up actually ready to go out for, dressed to go out for lunch with my girlfriends to celebrate the job that I'd accepted the night before. No idea, like just going through the motions. And we got to about 20 minutes in and they put the org chart down. So there was the owner and the group CFO from, there was a number of companies. They put the org chart down. And my background at that stage, mining services, labor hire, industrial relations in manufacturing, mining services and, and industry. And I'm looking at this thing. We're in traffic control on the major motorways and highways. Where's the safety function? And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, the owner was like, yeah, no, we've got it in the, at the, basically the supervisor and project manager level. I said, right, so what have you got in? Where is it assigned on this? And the CFO was smiling. So I knew it was a conversation he'd been trying to have. 
And I just stepped in and I just, I grabbed, I went and grabbed a whiteboard, pulled a whiteboard in the room and just started laying out the risk. So their conversion, their win rates on their tenders were lower than they wanted to be. Well, it was because you didn't have a safety function and the safety stats. I also went through, because at that stage was when the directorial responsibility for safety outcomes had just been introduced and the links to the penal code and the fact that he could actually go to jail for this. And so I whiteboarded everything and then also went, and you know, if I was in this job in the first 90 days, this would be our priority and this is how we do it. And I whiteboarded it and that's why I got the job. So I was in the interview for, more th- for almost three hours. So I kind of turned it into a consulting session and I walked out and the headhunter guy had all these messages on my mobile going, Jack, you of all people know the drill. Why have you not rung me? I need an update. Like get on the phone. And he rang him and I'm like, I've just left. He's like, what do you mean you've just left? I'm like, well, I did this. And he's like, you did what? I said, yeah, and I think I've got the job. And I think if I get the job, I've actually done my 90-day plan. And he's like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, it's really weird. Anyway, I got the job. But you'd taken another job. Yeah, yeah. So then I got, <laughs> then I had to turn that job back down. <laughs> they weren't happy. <laughs> That's really good. Yeah, so it is about the problem solving. Mm. And that program that you came up with, which you didn't have any idea what you were going to do when he came to your window, that really came from, obviously, there's been some key things where you've got opportunities that kind of shaped you and it fueled your passion to provide opportunities for other women. Yeah, absolutely. And it's actually for people full stop. Like I think women need more support to break through sometimes. But the one thing that I'm coming to realize in a lot of the conversations that I'm being engaged in lately is I like to solve problems. But more than that, I like to see people step into their potential. And that hurts me a lot because I quite often believe in someone's potential more than they do. And they can follow along with me and steal my belief to a certain point, but then at a certain point it gets quite almost vicious because they go, it's like I can't keep living to my potential and my promise I need to default back here. I question quite frequently whether I need to dial that back and I've discovered that I can't, right? So I love to see people, and that's what speaking is about. Like I don't want, if you're speaking from ego or thought bubble, you know, I started this business seven or eight years ago, whatever it is now with the core belief that everyone has a voice, everyone deserves to be heard. And I can tell you that within a few years, it became everyone has a voice and some people should shut up. <laughs> so, you know, so like, like we don't need to hear from people taking up oxygen. But there are clever people with wisdom that the world doesn't know about. And that's the thing. The way that I teach people how to speak and how to pitch and how to sell is because I've deconstructed it because I want to understand it and solve the problem. Yeah. So let's talk about speaking and let's talk about people kind of unlocking their power and unlocking their stories and, and kind of sharing it. Tell me about the first time you got up and spoke. <laughs> so this was, yeah, this is actually my speaking origin story. So one of the things that's really challenging for people, and I did say at this, you know, earlier in our conversation that I didn't speak a lot. So I actually refused to speak, right? I came from all sorts of internal stories about not being heard. But I took over family recruitment business, which I mentioned, and my mother was the face of it. And she spoke everywhere, right? She'd been in politics. She'd been involved in community development and economic development. And she grew the business to that point by speaking. I mean, we're talking the early, mid and late 90s. And I took it over in 2000. At the handover cocktail party, because she was handing it to her daughter, never mind that I'd been trained by Andrew and I come back and done all these things that mum went, actually, this is really good. Because Margaret's handing it over to her daughter, there was actually a book being run at the cocktail party about how long it would last, right? Once I took it over. 
And everyone's getting really offended on my behalf. And I'm like, no, this is perfect. So I actually concocted the perfect cover story. And the cover story was this, because I didn't want to speak and mum spoke everywhere. And the cover story was this, was that the brand was never, ever going to be about one face again. We actually rebranded the whole business to support that story. And so therefore, when the speaking inquiries still kept coming in, I would say, look, my calendar's full. But I can send Marie out or, you know, I can send Christina out or I can send, and I would train them how to speak because I knew about speaking from my mum. I would train them how to speak, but I wouldn't go out and do it myself. As an introvert who wasn't sure that she deserved the work that she was doing, I also went and got myself onto committees. So my strategy was to get myself onto committees, to show up and because I would let my work speak for me and be a really high performing part of that committee. And the other thing I would do is I would always take the registration desk because then by the time I walked into a room, I'd met everyone on the way through and I didn't feel like I was walking into a room full of strangers. And that was my strategy. I worked for ages. Anyway, there was a particular event and it was the Australian Institute of Management Management Excellence Awards. And we're talking 20 years ago. So before there was a proliferation of these awards, there's about 200 people in the room. Myself and my 2IC from our business, was on, we were on the registration desk and all of a sudden... <laughs> The chair of the committee, who he looks like the professor out of Back to the Future. He's a lovely guy. He's one of the most intelligent men I've ever met, but that's how he looks, right? Wild professor. And so he's, I look up and he's like literally running towards the desk with the white hair flying out the back. And it's like, Jack, 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 Nadine's missed her flight. Nadine was a keynote speaker. And I'm like, and she was coming up from Sydney. He's like, well, you're going to have to speak. And I'm like, I don't speak. He's like, you're going to have to speak. I'm like, I don't speak. Like it went like that because I've been so good with my cover story. It didn't occur to him that I just don't speak. I said, no, no, no. And I'm like, well, why me? And he's like, because you're the only woman on the committee and we need woman for woman. That was literally his words. And I was like, well, I'm doing this. It was a big event. So registration desk is really important. Alicia, who's my 2IC, she's like, I've got this covered. Off you go. She knows I've just got caught in the crosshairs. She's because my staff all knew my story. She's like literally almost on the floor from laughter. And I'm like, I'm so firing you tomorrow. And I walked out and I thought, what am I going to talk about? Because I, I understood that I was caught. And so I actually told stories about Andrew Banks and how I'd learned about business and leadership and strategy and Chris and Nira. And then I was walking back in. I was, if I tell stories about suits from the city, I'm going to get shot down in flames because we were in Rockhampton 20 years ago. And so I knew I had to tell those stories. And then I counted it with stories that I knew from like the PCYC and the Surf Life. So it's the everyday, you know, manager and leader. And I did that and I came off the stage and they wanted my script for the website, which was the funniest thing I'd ever heard in my life at that point. And then the other thing that happened was I had three people approach me to see if I would speak at their events. Wow. And the only way to describe what happened was I was like the shy, quiet teenager who discovered crack cocaine. I literally went from refusing to I would speak anywhere for anyone on anything at any time on any subject even. Like I didn't even care about subject. Give me a microphone, give me a couple of people who are breathing, tell me what you needed and point me in that deal. It's like a wind-up doll almost, right? And it worked. Like our business started growing. It had been really healthy and stable. Like as I said, it wasn't a bad business at all. The business started growing. And I discovered if my consultants in the room at the same time as I was speaking and they mixed and it would spike. Like, you know, there was like it was a really trackable thing. But about 12, 18 months in, I realized everyone loved hearing me speak. I was speaking at everything. I would like launch Salvation Army, Red Shield Appeals. I like didn't matter what it was. And I realized everybody was loving the experience of me speaking. So the emotion, the energy, all that sort of stuff. But nobody could actually remember what I'd spoken about. And as an introverted heart, 
the fact that I was doing this, that actually broke my heart. And I actually really challenged and questioned myself because all the markets were right. I was getting asked back. I was getting asked to do, and our business was growing. So all the markets were right. But it was like, hang on a minute. If I'm taking up time at the front of the room and people can't remember what I tell them, Mm. is this even worth it? And I actually spent about 18 months and six figures deep diving everything to do with communication, storytelling, negotiating, speaking, training, like everything I could find about 18 months, two years. And that's when I really got more powerful at speaking because I understood what it took for you to land inside the memory of someone. I understood what it took for you to go from head to heart and someone to actually walk out and do something with what you've shared. And that's where it really changed the game for me. And it, speaking became a strategy of every single thing I did after that point. Yeah. I wanted to ask that question, what your first experience was, because as a speaker, coach and a trainer and as a f- facilitator and, and, and people that help people get up on a stage, I wanted to unlock that first because everyone sees people and go, oh, wow, God, she's just amazing or he's amazing. And they don't, they don't know. I, I always love to unlock that first experience of getting up. And the other day, my wife was talking to my son and because my wife's been on a podcast, I run a podcast. And obviously over the years in real estate and in community, we've had lots of opportunities to actually get up and speak. And it's always been nerve wracking, but over time you get off the stage sometimes and people will say, oh, wow, I just love what you said there or whatever. And my wife said to my son the other day, whenever you get an opportunity, just say yes and do it because you, it will help you and you will grow through that just like you did when you got that opportunity on the spot, you know? Yeah. And if I'd been given time to think and it hadn't been in front of my team, I would still have said no, right? And the only way to grow through it was to do it, right? The only way. And, you know, and that's why when I work with people now and, you know, I get into a bit of a flow or people see me speak and it's like, but I want to be like that. And I'm like, well, start where I did. People think that they can go from zero to hero really fast. And I just did my own, on my own podcast series an interview with Carmine Gallo, who's like the global master of storytelling and things like that. And, you know, it wasn't until it went to air when it got published, people were messaging me and saying, are you listening to this? I'm like, yeah, yeah, it was an amazing interview. They're like, no, they're saying, he's saying people like us, he's putting you on the same level. And I'm like, oh, yeah, um, okay, I guess. But most of them were like in awe and I was just like, but I didn't start as someone who could hold that conversation. You know, I'm a really good fireside chat host. I am, you know, I do quite a bit of it. Um, I get paid for it. I'm good enough to get paid for it. But that has come from recruiting 10,000 people Mm. and asking questions and getting obsessed with, well, why did I think that person was a cultural fit, a perfect fit and they weren't? What are the questions I need to change? What are the questions that we need to ask as a team that unlocks those hidden bits of information? You know, so it's not an accident. And people look at it and go, you're amazing, but this isn't a freaking accident. It's been a build. Like we have, well, I was inducted into the space of recruitment interviewing in like one of the best in the country at the time. And then went back and recruited. And in regional Australia, you don't get to specialize. You do everything from the unskilled wrecking yard kid right through to the chair of the board for a $200 million agribusiness company, right? You don't get to specialize. So you have to get really good at it. So there's like 
literally tens of thousands of hours of asking questions of people and being able to understand what their answers meant. They go in behind being a good fireside chat host. So it's one of those things where people go, but I want to be like you. And I'm like, okay, great. You're actually, you start where I started or you're actually already ahead of where I started. So just keep going. Curiosity is a big thing as well, yeah. whether it's coaching or whether it's fireside chats and, and interviewing, it really is leaning into the curiosity. And if you keep in that curiosity, you really kind of unlock so much more. And also you ask a lot more questions. Yeah, absolutely. You said earlier, like you wanted to know like what my, my internal conversation or dialogue had been to get me through those times when it was not the life that I lead now. And I think I don't have, I said, you know, I don't have questions there, but where my life changed was when I got curious. When I shifted from just existing to being curious, you know, when I was first like told that the best thing for me to do would be to move at least 2,000 kilometers away somewhere like Melbourne, I was like, but why would you say that? Right? What, what will that difference be anyway? And for the first time, instead of like a flip the bird mentality when I'm asking a question, I was like, but why are they saying that? And then when I got into that job and I was allowed to be curious, like that's when everything changed. And that's also, you know, that's when I actually realized that if I got curious about my own perception of the world and I got curious about my own story about the world, that maybe that could change too. Yeah, that's cool. Jacqueline, tell me for those listening that are looking at, they've got a story, they've got a fire burning within them to get up on a stage or tell their story or coach or train. Tell me what are some of the key things that they need to ask themselves to break that fire out and unleash it? So there's a couple of things. There is, number one is, do you have the right to speak to this or train on this? So many people just want to be able to speak or get on stage or do workshops because they've heard it makes money or they want the profile. And they're stealing experience and knowledge that's not theirs. You must speak from deep lived and worked experience. If your answer to that is yes, or a really unique perspective. We're doing a um, Speak Like TED program at the moment, which is where the connection with Carmine Geller has come in. These people, their lived or worked experience is seriously deep. They know their stuff, whether it's the lived or the worked experience. So that's number one. You need to check in on that. If you need to unlock it, there's a couple of things, especially for women is the voice in your head asking you whether or not anyone, whether or not what you know is good enough and whether or not anyone will even listen to you. That voice in your head is a five-year-old child who lies to you. And what I mean by that is it's the child inside you that's trying to keep you safe, right? Because it is risky to put yourself out there. So most people hold themselves back from speaking because they believe that everyone knows this. And everyone may know that. Like in the Speak Like Ted session yesterday, people are like, I don't think I'm the first person to talk about critical thinking. And like, no, you're not, but you're the first person with your lens. The next thing is, is you need to be willing to invest. There is not a single, like I know some of the highest paid speakers in the world at the moment and they still have coaches. It's like tennis. Like we all accept that Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic have coaches, but we think we can just wing out with speaking. And when someone says to me, I don't need to be trained. I don't need to be coached. I'm really engaging and I have confidence and I just wing it. Everyone loves me. That's about you. That's not about your audience. So there's two questions I ask when someone says that to me is, have you ever thought about how much powerful you could be if you actually invested in it then, if you're naturally okay? And the second thing is, have you ever thought about the fact that that's all about you? Because when someone says that to me, it is all about them and nothing about the audience. The platform is a privilege. If you get to speak, you must be in service. 
So if you want to unlock it, you need to unlock it by investing in the skills, being coached, being open to feedback. And you also have to get in the arena. There's so many people who say they're speakers and they never actually get in the arena. They've created their keynotes, they've created their presentations, but besides for presenting it in their own lunchbox, they've never got out into the arena. You have to get in the arena. Speaking is a contact sport. The only way you get better at it is in the arena. And what are some tips to prepare for your first talk? No. Um, so one of the other biggest things is that people get really nervous before their first talk. So there is, I'll give you a quick hack. A quick hack is um, getting rid of the adrenaline because all of that nerves, sticky palms, tongue stuck, that's all adrenaline flooding your body in the fight, flight, freeze response. So we actually get people to go and do wall push-ups with their arms until the tops of their arms fatigue and that expels the adrenaline and gets you back to normal state. Super powerful. Really, really good one. The other thing is Script it and practice it. Now, I don't mean rehearse it and get it perfect. And some people prefer to post it note script, but actually think about it. And, you know, I reposted a meme from Adam Grant yesterday who talked about charismatic speakers get away with not giving value. You have to write something. If you write a speech, you have to actually validate your thinking and flesh it out. And so I say to people all the time, script it. Even if at the start you're not comfortable with scripting, just flow it. Get Just get post-it notes and flow it and chunk it and really think about what you're going to say with each one and get it really clear. Make it so that people can actually follow you logically. The thing I would say for people in technical and more professional spaces is, for the love of God, do not forget stories. And if you've got to share data, reveal the data in story format. That is how we engage. Story is the quickest way to create trust and connection. And the other thing that I would say to everybody is either leave the PowerPoint at home or do it as the very last thing. So many people build to the PowerPoint rather than build the speech, know the speech and build the PowerPoint last. Leave the PowerPoint at home or build it last. I love that tip. I love that last tip with the PowerPoint because I always think of speaking or when I'm doing workshops or anything like that, it's the PowerPoint's kind of probably like a protection blanket. It is. <laughs> it is. And also what happens when you build to the PowerPoint is you build to what naturally comes through. When you build without the PowerPoint, you've got room to play around the edges and actually get the best of you out. But the PowerPoint, creating the PowerPoint kind of directs our thinking because we know how to do that. We know how the format works and it directs our thinking and puts blinkers on. Whereas when we create without that, we quite often get the more compelling and magnetic content out. When it comes to authenticity and people being genuine and real, and you can tell it on a stage whether they're scripted and, it's, and they know what they're talking about and you're talking about making sure you've got some lived experience in the subject matter, I always find that for me it's so much easier when I talk about something that I've got lived experience on, I'm passionate about, something I don't have to remember anything. I'm speaking from the heart and that's where people connect with you. Yeah. So we, we take speaking from the heart and amplify that effect. So one of the things that's really important to understand is people think scripting or formalizing reduces heart, but it actually increases it. And the reason being is, so what we do is we pull out what you know to be true about the world, your lived and worked experience. And the actual point, in fact, in our workshops, you can't touch your laptop. There's no Google. There's no looking at where you, you can't touch your laptop. We use neuroscience and brainstorming. You cannot touch Google or your laptop the first two days. It's quite confronting for a lot of people. You have to be able to pull this out. And sometimes people end up in the fetal position because they've realized that their stuff is not coming from them. It's coming from somewhere else. And so you have to pull out and that's the heart bit. But then you have to shape it because 
You need to be able to move your audience from where they are now to where you want them to be, to where you never expected them to be. And you can't do that just speaking randomly from the heart. You have to take the heart and you have to shape it and amplify it. And if you don't do that, you can't actually predictably and sustainably move people through to where you want them to be. Yeah. So Jacqueline, tell me a little bit more around any given Tuesday, which you're the founder of. Yeah. What you work with and how you help people. Yeah, so Any Given Tuesday is the brand that we built just a couple of years ago. We evolved into this brand because I wanted it to encompass all that we do. And Any Given Tuesday is about, you know, we all start with enthusiasm and love and friends supporting and slapping us on the back, but can we still turn up on an ordinary Tuesday and do what we need to do? And our focus is definitely speaking, but also pitching and sales. So we work predominantly in speaking because that's the fastest way to teach people the principles of persuasion and influence because that's what we're actually doing. We're teaching you the principles of persuasion and influence. Mm. And we do that in a number of ways. We work one-on-one with people. I work anywhere from people just starting to get their speaking shoes on, so to speak, right through to top executives and entrepreneurs who are looking for that real compelling positioning. Work one-on-one, we have a number of programs. The last 12 months, all of our programs have been women only. We now know which ones suit women only and which ones we're reopening back up to both genders. So we have a workshop called Immersion. We have specialist workshops. We have group programs. And then we now and again, we run specialist programs like we're just doing at the moment in the middle of Speak Like Ted, which is teaching people how to do their TEDx talk, which is fascinating and fun. So yeah, so that's the education side and then we're just waiting for the trademarks to come through and I'll go back to the big stage speaking myself. And we work with the clever and I know that sounds really almost obnoxious, but we work with the clever. So you need to have deep lived experience or deep worked experience or a really unique perspective and just not really know how to express it in the world. Yeah. And working with people that are coming through, obviously you've got a lot of experience. What are some things that you kind of learn from people coming through that reminds you of things that maybe you had forgotten or? Yeah, um, really great question. Some of the things are like how close we get to our favorite, what I call our favorite children. Sometimes we have to kill our little darlings <laughs> and I get guilty of it as well. Like, you know, we're so attached and immersed in something. It's not actually a value to the audience to the level we think it is. Mm. And so usually when I'm discovering that I'm getting a theme of that coming through, I need to look a little closer to home because I'm guilty of it myself. It reminds me constantly, more prevalent in women than in men, that the volume of our outer voice will never outstrip the power of our inner voice. So our inner voice dictates the strength and the power of our outer voice. Speaking is an incredible thing. It is like, I think, you know, the same as, and you would agree, I think entrepreneurship is the biggest personal development journey you can ever go on and no one tells you about it before you start, right? There's no warning signs that this is what it's going to do to you. And speaking is kind of the same. Like you've got to, you've got to deal with the inner voice and the inner critic and the inner demons to be able to step into the full power of your outer voice. Mm-hmm. And I get reminded of that all the time by people I don't expect to hear it from. What everybody does is humbles me because everybody is capable of becoming a power, powerful storyteller no matter who they are. And whenever we get that point where the story becomes compelling and magnetic and delightful or shocking and horrifying, whatever it is people want, there's that moment where you go, there he is, there she is. And it just keeps me really humble because 
everybody can be a powerful storyteller, but you've literally got to get out of your own way. Mm. Yeah. And you're also a podcast host. I know you mentioned it earlier. Yeah. Yes. Speaker driven business. So we do have a short form one that's on our website, which is about 26 episodes. And that was Raise 1000 Voices, which is talking to women who were willing to tell their own story. But the one that we've just released, which is going really, really well, is Speaker Driven Business. So literally all the training we used to put into those free Facebook groups and things like that, I just went, no, I'm sick of all the firewalls. So we're just ripping off podcast episodes to put all of that content into the general public. And they're coming with downloads in the show notes and you know they'll get over to YouTube soon. But it's all about how to use speaking. So at the moment, we've just been teaching you all the things to do with putting together a keynote presentation. Next, we're going to go into the business pitching that I teach for things like tech stars and innovate communities and startup communities. And we'll go into teaching that. And now and again, I have a rant. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that sounds like a great tool for people to jump into and, and start to immerse themselves. They're in that frame of mind of wanting to speak and wanting to pitch business. And that sounds like a really good tool. Yeah, it is proving to be those that have found it cause monumental marketing mistakes, sent it live, but forgot to actually launch it. So those who have actually found it, our feedback has been extraordinary. People can are really finding every single episode valuable. They're walking away with things to implement. Now and again, we do throw in an interview with a superstar like you know, Carmine Gallo. We're working with him at the moment. So he agreed to do a podcast. It's proving to be really, really powerful. So it's speaker-driven business on both Apple and Spotify. Yep. Excellent. Jacqueline, can I ask with the demands of professional life, how do you manage your personal well-being? In peak periods, not at all. <laughs> um, and that's the very honest truth. I get very obsessive. But I'm more and more aware, like, you know, I used to balance it inadvertently because of young children, because I always put them first. And then after they, before COVID, I had an international business, so there'd always be downtime with traveling internationally. And that kept me quiet because to travel well, you have to be well. COVID changed a lot of my reference points, a lot of my habitual stuff. So I'm really getting back into it now. I'm also of an age, I'm in my early 50s. So as a woman, there are certain things I'm having to deal with that are irrefutable. Mm -hmm. So I'm learning to carve things out. So I was, I was and becoming better at again, really good at, I look like I'm chaotic and really busy, but I will have downtime that the world doesn't know I'm having. I will have complete weekends with the doors closed. I'm getting really good at taking baths. I love reading unwinds me. Reading really unwinds me. And just getting back into really good nutrition. I'd forgotten the power of a really good nutrition. So at the moment, my focus is really good nutrition and just moving a lot. And the most important thing when we're busy professionally is to actually have discipline around the commitments in our schedule. <laughs> That's a big thing. One of the big things, obviously, going through burnout for me was, and I think I was listening to a podcast, it was with Tim Ferriss, and it's really shaped me over many years is what you say yes to, ask yourself what you're saying no to. Yeah. And that really shapes what I do and how I focus on things now. If it's not a F yes, it's a, it's a no. Something that I really want to do, then great. But if it's not, it's a no. And I used to feel guilty if I used to say no, but there's actually power in saying the no. Yeah. And I also think when you're a high performance or, you know, busy professionally or whatever you might call it, you've got to remember that there are networks around you to lean on. Like, you know, I have built 
a small but really good team. I've built a small but really good personal circle. And I'm very guilty of when I'm really hectic of forgetting that those people are there, right? So it's also remembering, and that's that's actually honoring and respecting who they are because you're not just saying, I'm the superhero, I can get this done and I can push through and I can do anything. It's like, oh no, I've actually got really clever, smart, beautiful people around me. And so it's making sure that you remember that because quite often when we get on a tangent or high performance or whatever, you know, and having people around you who are willing to pull you up. And I don't mean the intervention style. I mean that gentle, hey, I've just noticed, are you? You know what I mean? Like surround yourself with those people. Yeah, yeah. And there's real power in connection and collaboration. And that's what I'm really starting to work with with the podcast is actually saying to people, oh, you need to connect with this person. You need to connect with that person. And, you know, someone will say to me, oh, can you come and help do this workshop or present here? And I'll say, yeah, cool. As well, I've got this person, which I think would be really valuable. And it's interesting because for me, it's about an abundance mindset, not having a scarcity mindset. And in the professional development and in training and, and workshops, a lot of people are very oh, I can't tell people about that because then that'll take business. But you think about, well, if I connect that person, a lot of the time it's going to be reciprocated. So then that- Absolutely. I'm finding now a lot of people are reaching out to me and saying, oh, Steve, you did this for me. You know, like, can you come and help me with this? Can you come and help me with that? And the power of connection and collaboration, I think, is it's invaluable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Could not agree more. Jacqueline, I wanted to ask you, when you think of success through your life, how do you, how do you define it these days? Oh, actually, I shouldn't go, oh, I know exactly what it is. Success is having choice. It's choice. Like it's not financial or relationship or travel or whatever it is. I don't care what part of my life. I want to have choice. So not have to do things, um, not be obligated. I mean, obviously there's legal obligations and there's moral obligations, but it's having choice. And throughout your life, can I ask you, who's been your greatest teacher? (laughs) The woman in the mirror. (laughs) When I look at her, honestly, there's always something I need to go and learn and rediscover. So yeah, the woman in the mirror is absolutely my greatest teacher. Yep. There's so much power in that mirror. Yeah, there is, when you're willing to look into it. Now, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh, I hate these questions. <laughs> um, what advice would I give to my younger self? I think it's actually, it's look for the people, look for the people who are actually standing beside you. So when you come from a high impact background like mine, you don't stop to see even when people are there to help because it's all down to you. I've got my own back. I'm best when my back's up against a wall, like, you know, all those mantras that run through your head. And so it would be always to look for the people because even though I've had amazing mentors, there's been other touch points that probably I could have lent into in hindsight. So it would be like look for the people who are going to stand with you. If you were sitting down with your 100-year-old self, what would that lady say to you? I'm going to have to bleep this. Holy shit, we made it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not bleeping it. It's all good. That's that's genuine. That's authentic. Yeah, holy shit, we made it. That's how I would feel at 100. Brilliant. Mm -hmm. Now, Jacqueline, what's the best way for people to connect with you professionally but also personally to touch base? 
Yeah, look, professionally is definitely uh, LinkedIn. Connect on LinkedIn. Find me there. Personally is is actually via Instagram. So, you know, my personal profile on Instagram is Jacqueline.t.speaks and that's the personal connection there. Um, that's, that's my team aren't on that. I'm on that one. But professionally is definitely LinkedIn and obviously if people want to look at the website, it's anygivenTuesday.com.au. Excellent. I'll put those details in the show notes as well for the episode. But I wanted to thank you for your time. I'm really grateful for your insights, for sharing your stories and sharing your journey. Knowing you for a decade or so now, I just want to say I'm really proud of you. I've seen you grow. I just love the energy. Thank you. And thank you. you've got so much more to give and, and I'm looking forward to keeping the connection strong and checking in with you from time to time. Thank you so much, Steve. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Jacqueline. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. It's been great to have you along for the ride. Remember to hit subscribe and share this episode with a friend. Maybe just one person you think could benefit from what was just shared. Also, if you haven't connected with me yet, you can find me on Instagram at the Steve Hodgson and also share underscore underscore podcast. I'll catch you on the next episode.